Market Antics. Hello and welcome back to Art Crime with RJ. I really do apologise for the super long hiatus that I've left you all on, but I have been very busy working on some new content uh, and also had a lot of change happen in my personal life over the summer. But I am back again and with a new series I'm going to call Art Market Antics. In this ongoing series, I'll be looking at individuals and institutions within the art market that have been part of some questionable, if not downright illegal, antics. Uh, This could be to buyers, sellers, artists or the viewing public, and I want to take you all along for the ride. This introductory episode is the final segment of the trilogy of Brett Whiteley episodes, which can be played before or after the other two, but I think it's more interesting to consume the others first and then come back to this, so please enjoy them if you can spare the time, and I will see you in a bit when you get back to this one. In this episode, I will be looking at the CD Australian art dealer and Commonwealth accredited authenticator Peter Gant, who over his career spanning four decades has been caught in a variety of scams and lawsuits, too many for me to trust him as an art dealer, but apparently not for others. Before we get into this episode, I do need to make one small apology for my last episode. I realised after searching through the Whiteley on Trial book that I had missed a section of chapter 4 due to a fault in the way the ebook was set up, so I completely missed Gant's defence and a few testimonies from other people. I'll be honest, I did think that the way the chapter cut off was a bit weird, but clearly not weird enough for my tired brain to investigate further. I also just want to note that Hopefully the audio quality has improved a little bit as I now have a new setup at my partner's place, or my new place, I should say. So hopefully these podcasts will get better and also the audio for my videos will get better and potentially the video quality of my videos may also get better now that I'm in a new place and have a little bit more to experiment with equipment-wise and a little bit more time to experiment with editing and that sort of thing. Now that I've got my apologies and a little explanation about the potential increase in quality out of the way, let's go back to the 80s to see the first inklings of Gant's questionable art market antics. The 1980s In Whiteley on Trial, Kolsevich introduces us to Peter Gant through a timeline of some of the most notable and questionable situations he has found himself in throughout his career, and the first item on the top of the list is the most dramatic, being threatened at gunpoint by a client's henchman for selling him a fake painting. Gant divulged this story in a completely unrelated court testimony, as reported by the Sydney Morning Herald, that his client, Robert Ojedge, a Sydney property developer, had held Gant and his staff at gunpoint until he returned Ojedge's 250000 Australian dollars that he had paid for a Russell Drysdale painting in 1988-9. This was during Drysdale's art market heyday as a critically important Australian painter, inspired by surrealism and abstract art forms, whose 1950 exhibition in London brought Australian art out of its relegation as a subset of British art to the forefront as its own unique cultural centre. In Gant's defence, he stated that he had bought the Drysdale work from Chris Deutscher, now co-owner of Deutscher and Hackett Auction House based in Melbourne, who had apparently sourced the work from his uncle in London. In Gant's opinion, it looked like a Drysdale and smelled like a Drysdale, 
as one of the first notable instances of him encountering and profiting from a fake, this wouldn't raise a red flag with me or with most other people in the art market, as sometimes fakes look better than the real thing, and if the dealer is an expert in that specific artist, it may be easier to squeeze a convincing fake past them. It is also incredibly difficult to work within the art market and not encounter at least one fake. However, as this timeline goes on, this first incident in the 1980s unfortunately begins a pattern of behaviour for Gant as a dealer that works on the outskirts of legality in the art market. The 1990s In the 1990s, Gan's interactions with the law heated up, as he started off the decade by being charged with deception for selling a painting that he didn't own by John Percival, an Australian painter and ceramicist famous for his involvement in the Angry Penguin, which is my favourite art movement name I think I've ever heard, and Antipodian art groups in Australia. Due to the fact that Gant was acquitted by the County Court of Victoria in 1993, I can't find much about this court case, but this incident builds the foundations of a pattern of lawless behaviour by Gant as a money-hungry, deceptive dealer. Alongside his issues with the criminal courts, Gant also begins a history in the financial courts, as he filed for bankruptcy around this time. Now, unfortunately, these documents aren't publicly available, so I can't determine if it was a personal or business bankruptcy or whether that's the same thing, in the Australian courts anyway, but I would be incredibly interested to see what Gant listed, as according to the Australian government's Financial Security Authority, when filing for bankruptcy, you must report all, and I repeat, all of your debts, income and assets to the authority-appointed trustee that looks after your account. Now, if we follow the logic from Gant's previous testimonies over the three Brett Whiteleys that he directly bought from Christian Quintas, Whiteley's studio assistant in 1988, they should be somewhere in his assets list, unless he gave them to someone else, he hid them, or shocking thought they didn't exist at the time. The other option could be that if this is a personal bankruptcy and those paintings are listed in his business practice, then they may not actually have to be listed individually and would probably just be listed as assets within the business. But unfortunately, because I don't know whether it's a personal or a business bankruptcy, I couldn't even tell you that for sure. But that's also another possibility. I guess, unfortunately, I will never know for sure. But I do have my suspicions. I'm thinking that they didn't exist at the time. But you didn't hear that from me. Gant's suspicious activity only got worse towards the end of the 90s, as there were rumours in the art market that were confirmed by those involved later on in this timeline that Gant had sold 23 Charles Blackman drawings to Win Schubert, a Gold Coast gallery owner. This scheme was discovered when Schubert took them to the artist directly to be authenticated. Although Schubert did manage to get her money back when she returned the works to Gant, Remember these 23 drawings, as like many fakes, they will resurface again. Alongside causing issues in the Australian art market, Gant also appeared with an individual that you may remember from previous episodes, John Playfoot, in a British High Court case over some suspicious car mascots. As detailed in the Australia Financial Review in early 1999, Playfoot and Gant were implicated as the source of 14 purple glass car mascots, purportedly made by world-renowned Parisian glassmaker and jeweller René Lalique 
inspired by Rolls-Royce's Spirit of Ecstasy statues that sit on the front of the car. I didn't even know that they had a name, to be honest with you, but it makes sense for something that's on a Rolls-Royce that the statue would even have a name. In the lawsuit, McLaren Formula One team owner Mr. Mansell Ojar bought the mascots for 1.3 million Australian dollars through a jersey company, as they were said to be Bouchons de Radiators, made by René Lalique in the 1920s-30s from incredibly rare purple glass, rather than standard clear glass. 14 of the 17 that were sold were part of John Playfoot's collection, selling for 798,000 Australian dollars. However, the owner soon sued Mark Waller, the London dealer that sold the lot on behalf of Playfoot, for breach of contract in the London High Courts when it was discovered that the mascots had been tinted purple by being exposed to radiation, through a process known as irradiation to produce the rarer purple colour rather than using metal powders that change colour during the glass blowing process. Although Playfoot tried to argue that it may have been possible that Lalique irradiated them himself, the judge argued there were no publications that ever mentioned the irradiated mascots, and his family who continued the family industry and write on Lalique have never mentioned them. In his final decision against the London dealer Mark Waller, the judge awarded damages and costs to be paid to Mr Ojeff for the fake mascots. After further research, it turns out that the provenance trail apparently leads to Gant, who had purportedly bought the purple Laliques from a couple based in Geelong who had since passed away. A little convenient if I'm being honest. Both Gant and Playfoot maintain that the works were purple when they came to them, and Playfoot argues that he only sold the works to Waller after he was repeatedly asked to do so. The point in this article I find particularly funny, in hindsight, is that John Playfoot swore he would leave art dealing, which as we know from the previous two episodes, did not happen and probably would have been the better choice for him. Gant topped off the 90s by appearing on an Australian broadcasting company television programme called Four Corners, which is similar to Panorama for my British folks or 60 Minutes for my American audience. In this episode, Gant was interviewed for his role in the circulation of a group of Sydney Nolan paintings that had hit the market. Obviously, Gant denies that they were fake, but I think given his brief record in the 90s, that statement is unlikely to be true. The 2000s It's summer 2000. Everyone is excited for the start to a new decade and a new millennia, and yet Gant is already attempting to repeat the 90s by circulating some of his favourite works for a second time into the market. Remember those 23 Charles Blackmans I mentioned earlier? Well, they are back with a vengeance, only four years on from their first debut, with two of these artworks being consigned to auction houses in Melbourne and Victoria. In August 2000, Deutsche Menzi Auction House pulled Boy in a Toy Car from their auction after suspicion arose that it could be a fake, which if sold, was estimated to make between 8 to 12,000 Australian dollars. The second work was actually sold by Manton Auctioneers at Billalia Mansion in Brighton, Victoria for 4,000 Australian dollars and was only refunded when the buyer produced a letter stating it was fake. Although this might seem a very quick turnaround, only holding on to these works for four years before trying to resell them, the Manton auction clearly shows that the market attention span to potential fakes is reasonably short, and that the market desire for Blackman works, who had become one of the most wanted artists in the 1990s boom, was great enough to risk its sale. Walter Granick, one of the leading experts on Blackman's works, argued that although these works were close to the motifs of Blackman, they had not mastered his smudging technique and were nothing to do with him. 
Tom Lowenstein, Blackman's accountant and close friend, made the link that these works were part of the previous 23 that Wynne Schubert had bought and had refunded by Gant, but due to the refund being given, none of these works had been marked as fake or been destroyed, meaning that Gant was free to resell them to unsuspecting buyers who were not aware of his reputation. I also just want to remind everyone that we are talking about the 90s, early 2000s. Not everyone was well versed in a Google search, newspapers did not have huge online archives of their stories, and any rumours of Gantt's misgivings would have been passed by word of mouth as a cautionary warning through the art market for those who chose to listen. In 2002, Gantt goes for another member of the Antipodian art group and is taken to civil court by Robert Dickerson, one of Australia's most recognisable figurative artists, over two suspect charcoal drawings that were being marketed as by Dickerson. Unfortunately, as it was a civil court case and settled out of court, I can't find much on it, but I would presume based on Gant's track record and that they were reported by the artist as being suspicious, they were probably fakes. We wrap up Gant's 2000s with a second bankruptcy in 2003, which he managed to have annulled by paying off his debts. Although these few incidents may seem like a lot of fraudulent activity for only one man, as we shall soon discover, this is really only the beginning for Gant's prolific career. The 2010s We start the 2010s in March, with Gant being taken to the Supreme Court by two artists that he had targeted before, Charles Blackman and Robert Dickerson, over the sale of three artworks purportedly by them. Although Robert Blanche, the Melbourne businessman that had bought the works, was refunded in the summer of 2008 when he found out they were fakes by Helen Stewart of Gretz Gallery, who had been displaying the works for Gant, the two artists still took Gant to trial for misleading and false advertising, seeking financial damages for the possible repercussions the sale of these fakes had on their market standing and secondary market resale value. Because Stuart largely rectified her end of the deal, as she had refunded Blanche and supposedly had no idea that they were fakes, the court case centred largely on Gant selling, falsely advertising and falsely authenticating works that were later deemed to be fakes. Although Gant's argument was that he didn't know that they were fakes, that he only provided market price valuations based on if they were authentic and not actual certificates of authenticity, Judge Peter Vickery argued that through the valuation certificates he presented for the works, he impliedly represented all works as authentic and therefore was in breach of the Fair Trading Act of 1999. The judge also argued that these valuations served a dual purpose, Firstly, as a market valuation for the works, which could be used by Blanche for insurance and tax purposes, as they were bought as an investment for his superannuation fund, basically the Australian version of a company pension fund, and secondly, as an indicator of authentication, especially for those not heavily invested in the workings of the art market that may not know to check for provenance or to go to the artist's estate directly to check authenticity. To get out of the lawsuit, Gant tried to argue that there is no reason for this lawsuit in the first place, as one, neither artist was directly involved in the sale of these fake artworks that were purportedly by them, two, they didn't suffer in the market as the valuations of these fakes or their existence was not widely known in the market, three, the only victim, Mr Blanche, was refunded by Stuart, and four, Gant had his fake artworks back, so in his mind, everything was resolved. However, the judge argued that both Dickerson and Blackman could have suffered as their reputation and the perception of their collection's integrity in the market 
could have been seen as untrustworthy by future investors in the primary and secondary resale market. Unfortunately, due to the fact that Blackman and Dickerson did not direct the court to weigh in on if these works were authentic or not, to establish their argument for damages, because they knew they were fakes, the judge held judgment on the case and let the media attention run its course until the 1st of June 2010. During the period between the 31st of March and the 1st of June, Gant's team and the artists' teams got their evidence together to decide whether Gant breached the Fair Trading Act by mis-selling forgeries as authentic. In this trial, the full story of how these works were marketed and sold was divulged, which starts all the way back in the 90s. Although I couldn't find when Gant had given Helen Stewart of Gretz Gallery the two Blackman charcoal drawings of schoolgirls, street scene with schoolgirl and three schoolgirls, we do know from the trial that in late 1999, Blanche and his business associate Malcolm McLean went to Gretz Gallery as naive art investors to look for some investment art for their Bayside Drafting Superannuation Trust Fund. They were shown the works and, according to their testimonies, asked some pretty good questions, like whether Stuart thought they were good investments, which she thought they were, and how to know if they were authentic, which she said that she would get a Commonwealth-approved valuer to authenticate the works and give a valuation prior to sale. So in October of 1999, Gant provided his valuation for the works, stating that the three schoolgirls' work is worth 9500 Australian dollars and that the street scene with Schoolgirl is worth 8000 Australian dollars, which was based on how well the art market had been for the past two years. The company got a discounted deal by buying the two together, paying 13500 Australian dollars. Six years later, in 2004, Stuart contacted McLean about the Dickerson work, Pensive Woman, and advised that it would be great to add to the collection. They asked for a valuation for the work, which Gant once again provided, stating that it would be worth 13000 Australian dollars from a December 2004 valuation. In May of 2005, they bought the work on behalf of the superannuation fund for 10800 Australian dollars. However, after purchasing the work, Blanche received a tax invoice from Gant's irascible gallery, which is when he shockingly became aware that the person who thought was independently valuing the work was actually the seller of the work, which felt illogical to him. I completely agree with him on this one, as it seems weird on Gant's side to not be upfront with Blanche about his identity as the seller of the works when he's also evaluating them as an independent Commonwealth evaluator. At the end of 2005, Blanche asked Gant for updated valuations for the two Blackman drawings for insurance purposes, which Gant delivered in February of 2006, placing Street Scene with Schoolgirl at 10,000 Australian dollars and three schoolgirls at 12,000 Australian dollars. Although these valuations showed an increase in investment over the five years, everything began to crumble for Blanche in July of 2008 when he went to Walter Granick's gallery and told him about his three artworks. Granick was intrigued and went to see them in Blanche's office a month later, where he declared the two Blackman works as fakes because as an art dealer, consultant, Commonwealth accredited valuer, just like Gant, and the cataloger for the Blackman's Children's Trust art collection, he should know what he's talking about. Aside from declaring them fake, it was also revealed in court testimony that Granick had seen both of these works several years ago and declared them as fakes before, when they were previously brought to him by other buyers. In his expert opinion, the works did not have the artistic talent to be Blackman's, although they did copy his motifs well enough to almost be believable, and that the paper used for the work was too high quality for a drawing from this period, 
as at that point in time, Blackman was a struggling artist and couldn't afford high-quality artist paper. Alongside declaring them fakes, he told Blanche to seek out Stephen Nell's opinion at the Dickerson Gallery on the authenticity of Pensive Woman, as he was his son-in-law and leading expert on the artist. Nell confirmed Granick's thoughts and declared the work a fake, leading to Blanche asking for a refund from Helen Stewart, which was repaid at full purchase price plus interest, equaling 31,860 Australian dollars in September of 2008, and Blanche returning the artworks, which ended up returning to Gant and stayed there, thankfully, until they were seized as evidence for the court. Unfortunately, there is no more information on what Gant did with them in between 2008 and 2010, as he did not testify at the June 2010 trial. In the case, the two artists argued that the two valuations that Gant gave in 2004 and 2006 implied authenticity of the works to Blanche, who was naive in the market at the time, and that him selling the Dickerson work directly in 2004 implied authenticity to Blanche, with both issues being misleading or deceptive in trade and commerce and a breach of the Fair Trading Act of 1999. In response, the artist wanted the following. 1. Damages to the tune of 25000 Australian dollars each for the negative ramifications that a fake in the secondary art market could have to their brand and resale value of other works in the primary and secondary art market. 2. Permanent injunctions restraining the future sale or offering for sale of the artworks in issue or providing valuations for them. 3. Delivery for destruction of the artworks. 4. Provision of a wide-ranging affidavit from Mr Gant relating to all of his dealings, including full details of all works represented by him to be works of either of the two artists. And 5. Seek a declaration stating that the artworks are not works created by the artists. Annoyingly, Gant made no case submissions, which had largely been the whole reason why the judge had not previously ruled on these issues back in March, as he wanted to give Gant time to collate evidence so that he could give him a fair trial. Unfortunately, Gant chose not to defend himself, so the judge heard all of the artist's evidence for why the works were fakes from various experts that had been mentioned previously, the artists themselves, as well as other art market members like Jeffrey Smith, the head of art and vice chairman of Sotheby's, and Robin Sloggett, a forensic authenticator who felt that all the works were fake from the small amount of testing that she had done. All of them provided evidence, whilst Gant's team tried to argue against their claims without any supporting documentation. An uphill battle, realistically. Overall, the judge found the artworks to be fake and that they were masquerading as real due to the signatures on them. Now that the judge had found the works to be legally deemable as fake, the artists presented their experts on the art market to discuss what impacts the fakes could have had on the market and reputation of these two artists. Stuart Purves, the National Director of Australian Galleries, stated that fakes affected the standing of artists in the secondary market as it dampens the quality associated with the artist, creates doubt about their entire collection and can destabilise the entire market if it is too prolific. Stephen Nall stated that from previous experience, fakes can turn customers away from a specific artist as they do not trust the artist's name after being tricked into previously purchasing a fake and that there is no prescribable value to these fakes once they are discovered, which is bad for the investor and the artist. Tom Lowenstein, Blackman's attorney and director of the corporate trustee of Blackman's Children's Trust, argued that these fakes also cause issues for charities like the Trust and other artist collection funds, as some fakes are cheaper versions of what they currently hold and actively take money away from the artist and their estate holdings. 
He also believes that many of these fake Blacklands originally made their way into the market in 1996, when Gant sold 23 to win Schubert, and that now many are coming back around into the secondary market so that their original buyers can make their investments back. Dickerson also testified, arguing that the fakes demean his efforts to do a good drawing, and that his audience would be very upset to see these fakes and their quality, and that Pensive Woman ultimately makes him look stupid, because it looks incredibly bad. His words, not mine. In the end, the judge handed down the following ruling. 1. That Blackman and Dickerson would not receive damages for the sales of these works, as he felt they could not prove that they had experienced material loss from this private sale. This could have changed if it had been done publicly through auction, but because it was to a private individual and no one really knew about it, as Gant argued, it didn't really impact them in that way. Two, that both artists also were not allowed access to Gant's records from the past five years to check how many items he had sold that were purportedly to be by them, as the judge felt it would be too damaging to Gant's business and was not necessary to establish the facts of this case. And three, that due to the fact that Gant still had the objects in his stock lists as being attributed to the artists after they had been returned to him, which I would say is a rookie mistake, the judge felt that he was likely to sell them again, and that the only option left to him was to have the works offered up to the artists for delivery and destruction. For this, the judge gave Gant 30 days to deliver the works to the court, and the artist 7 days upon receiving the works to destroy them. In a secondary judgement, Gant was also ordered to pay the artist's legal costs of about 300000 Australian dollars, which surprisingly, he never did. The only thing he did follow through with was delivering the fake works to the court, which were then handed to Blackman and Dickerson, who held a bonfire and public celebration to destroy the works, which I think is a fitting resolution for these artists, as the law is not always on their side in these types of cases. A few days later, the news cycle somehow managed to link one of Gant's associates to another unscrupulous dealing, an untitled nude drawing supposedly by one of the artists that Gant would become the most associated with, Brett Whiteley. According to a The Sunday Morning Herald article from June 2010, an untitled Whiteley ink nude on paper from 1978 was removed from Milbourne's Moss Green auction house sale, where it was estimated to have been worth between 35 to 45,000 Australian dollars. According to its current owners, the artwork was inherited by Whiteley's nephew, Daniel Carlyle, who in this article denies his ownership, stating he has never seen the work before, before it was passed on to an unknown person, before finding its way to one of Gant's associates, John Playfoot, who displayed the work at Masterpiece IXL Gallery in Hobart, where it was purchased by the current owners. In the article, Playfoot would not reveal his contact between him and the nephew, but that he would be seeking a full refund from them. Within a month, however, the story of Orange Lavender Bay began to circle due to the investigative work of individuals like Gabriela Kolshevich at The Age in July of 2010, where Playfoot and Gant began to be linked to each other. Realistically, I don't think it takes a genius to realise who might be the supposed link between Whiteley's nephew and John Playfoot, if that provenance story is deemed to be truthful, or if you're more cynical, who might have been the producer of the untitled nude. So this is just an interesting side note that I found whilst doing my research, which I thought would provide really good context for the Australian art market at this time, as a new law was also beginning to worry above-board art dealers, as the Australian government tried to make the resale art market more fair for artists, their estates and the title owners of priceless works, 
through the Resale Royalty Right for Visual Artists Act of 2009. In this act, 5% of the resale value of a work through a commercial resale, whether that be through an auctioneer, a dealer, a gallery, a museum or other art market professionals, had to be given back to the artist or title owner for the work. So this is kind of similar to what NFTs do in some respects, where after an NFT is resold on the market, a certain amount of the profit is coded to go back to the original artist, which is a positive, but as you will also see within this law specifically, it ends up becoming a little bit of a negative for the art market itself. So although it is beneficial for many artists who may only rise to fame and fortune after their death, in which this money would help to secure their estates, families or foundations that they may have set up during their lifetime, members of the art market have argued that this law may cause an increase in fakes in the art market, as art owners try to avoid using art market mechanisms so that they can avoid losing the 5% of their value to the artist. Realistically, this could lead to more private collectors privately trading between each other, with no outside evaluators to be able to conduct due diligence on these works giving fraudsters an opening to conduct their business more regularly and less suspiciously. But now as we go back to Gantz world, we move into 2011 with a lawsuit against the Age newspaper, in which Peter Gantz tried to sue the paper for defamation over five articles discussing several of his interactions with the law and his links to various instances of art fraud. Frankly, it's quite a tedious lawsuit, so I'll give you the synopsis. Basically, Gant brought forward statements from each of these articles that he felt placed him in a bad light. Overall, the judge told Gant that he had to come back to this lawsuit with better evidence to support his claims, as many of the statements he chose were either 1. Too broad in their application, as they could have been applied to many other experts or even the art market at large. 2. Weren't specific enough in the evidence they chose to back up their argument which have caused a dangerous legal precedent if allowed to go through and ultimately were not covered in the remits of the law, or three, were based on the supposed damages to Gant from the reported statements made by others about him in the age that he was unable to or chose not to respond to, which realistically is not the fault of the paper or would fit better into a separate lawsuit against the individual that made the comments and that was then published by The Age. The full lawsuit is available to read if you so wish, but I will warn it gets a little bit tedious and a bit repetitive in some of its arguments, but unsurprisingly, this lawsuit does not raise its head again. Whether this is due to the fact that Gant just could not get the evidence together to actually make a satisfying lawsuit that would be able to fit within the remits of the law, or whether that's due to the fact that he declared himself bankrupt again for the third time, although he technically paid off the second one, so whether it still counts, I don't know, in which he owed the Australian Taxation Office, and prepare yourself for this, 1.9 million Australian dollars. Yes, I did say 1.9 million Australian dollars, uh, which is a bit of a jump from his last one. His creditors included Charles Blackman and Robert Dickerson for 300,000 Australian dollars for that lawsuit. The law firm that represented Gant in that said case, owing them 80,000 Australian dollars. 400,000 Australian dollars to Questco, Robert Letet's company, which Letet argues was a low figure, and around 135,000 Australian dollars to Playfoot for stock purchases, which again has been argued to be an underestimate. Surprisingly, Stephen Drake, who became the second owner of Orange Lavender Bay in 2013, also makes this list, with Gant owing him 120,000 Australian dollars. 
Again, Gant manages to squirm his way out of this bankruptcy, as it was discharged on the 10th of August of 2015, with the Australian Taxation Office and all of Gant's creditors not seeing a single cent of that 1.9 million Australian dollars. At the same time, Andrew Predom was suing Anita Archer over the sale of Big Blue Lavender Bay that she had sourced from Gant, which was settled confidentially. This is where the timelines of the past two episodes and this one finally begin to melt together, but shockingly, Gant still has other artworks that were causing problems within the art resale market. In 2014, Gant was surprisingly only a witness in a landmark Supreme Court of New South Wales case concerning a work entitled Fawn and Parrot, supposedly by Albert Tucker, which was discovered to be a fake in 2010 when it was put up for resale by its owner, Sydney lawyer Louise McBride. In the lawsuit, McBride attempted to sue Christie's Australia, the auction house that sold the work in 2000, Vivian Sharp, her art agent who bid for McBride in the auction, and Alex Holland of Holland Fine Arts and Cars, who was selling the work through the Christie's auction, for various issues such as deceptive or misleading conduct, breach of contract, fiduciary conduct, unconscionable conduct, and negligence. To fully understand this lawsuit, we need to go back all the way to late 1999, when Alex Holland arrived at, you guessed it, Peter Gant Fine Art, where he was apparently the first to see an Albert Tucker that had just arrived at his gallery, which had been in a private client's family for a very long time. Holland took his opportunity to purchase an Albert Tucker, another one of the modernist artists that was part of the Antipodians and Angry Penguins group that I have mentioned previously in this episode. Holland purchased the work for about 45,000 Australian dollars and had it delivered to his office. A few months later, in February of 2000, David Cook of Christie's Australia came to the Holland Fine Art offices looking for six paintings to put up for auction, selecting the supposed Tucker, which was sold as a 1967 signed Tucker entitled Fawn and Parrot that had been acquired by the father of the present owner in 1970 with a guide price of 55 to 75,000 Australian dollars. However, by the summer of 2000, Christie's was made aware of possible provenance concerns with the work, from a symposium held in August of 2000 that the provenance, which supposedly went from Albert Tucker to Barry O'Sullivan's father to Barry O'Sullivan, the apparent present owner, as referenced in Christie's auction description, may be wrong. From here, the symposium believed that the work may have made its way through Gant, previously known as an unnamed dealer who bought the work, amongst others very cheaply from Sullivan, who passed them on to Alex Holland, who passed other works on to known Gant associate John Playfoot. During the symposium, they also highlighted that they believed Fawn and Parrot, which was sold to McBride, and another Tucker that was coming up for sale, entitled Fawn being attacked by Parrots, were both fakes. Christie's went ahead with the sale of the second work, even with these noted doubts, and sold the work to the Australian club anyway. Fast forward to 2010, when McBride tried to sell her Tucker painting through Geoffrey Smith at Sotheby's Australia. According to Smith, he felt that the work could have been linked back to Gant, an individual that was a bit suspicious in the art market by this point, and that it may have been part of a wider group of Tuckers that came into the market just after Tucker died in 1999, when the popularity for his works saw a resurgence and increased market value. Smith told McBride that for him to consider putting the work into Tucker's catalogue raisonné and to help with selling the work down the line, he would need strong provenance evidence dating back to the 1960s. To help with this evidence, McBride sent the work to Robin Sloggett, who you may remember for, before from University of Melbourne, for forensic testing in 2010, 
where she concluded that although the work fit within the subject of this time period for Tucker and could be ascribed to him, there were stylistic issues with the way the painting was constructed and how the parrot feathers were painted, alongside issues with the materials used and the noted issues with the lack of provenance. Alongside Sloggett, Neil Holland, a handwriting expert, was also asked for his opinion, in which he stated that the signature was too different for it to be authentic. Due to the fact that the judge believed the work to be a forgery, both Holland and Gant were forced to explain their conduct in court on how this forged work managed to make it to sale in the first place. In Gant's affidavit, he argues that Barry O'Sullivan reached out to him in 1999 after his father, an existing client of Gant's, that he also owned racehorses with, passed away, looking to sell some of the paintings he inherited. In the provenance story that O'Sullivan told Gant, the work had been in his house for as long as he could remember, and it had either been purchased from Tolano Gallery, Melbourne, or Dominion Gallery, Sydney, in the 1960s or 70s. Under examination, Gant stated that he did not do his usual due diligence, which I think at this point we know to have been his standard practice in the art market, because the artwork and its materials just felt like an authentic Albert Tucker to him, which he had apparently dealt with before. After not doing any due diligence, it seems, Gant purchased the work for $30,000 Australian dollars and sold it on to Mr. Alex Holland for around $35,000 Australian dollars, which may seem surprising now, but back in 1999 when this transaction occurred, Gant was still regarded positively within the art market and still dealing regularly with dealers and auction houses, consigning them artworks for sale. The prosecution, however, argued that Gant and Holland both purposefully hid Gant's involvement within the provenance trail for the artwork from possible buyers due to Gant's negative reputation building after the Blackman incident mentioned previously. The prosecution believes that either Gant created the Barry O'Sullivan character so that Gant could be absolved and turned into a mysterious dealer link between the real owner and Mr Holland, rather than the artwork emanating from Gant's personal collection, or that Mr Holland himself tried to hide Gant out of the provenance through obscuring letterheads on provenance paperwork that was later sent to Christie's during the sale of the work that included Gant's name. However, there are also arguments to be made that Gant did this to himself to make the artwork untraceable to him, as Mr Holland argues that he doesn't remember sending that paperwork in the first place. However, when McBride asked Holland for more evidence when she was preparing for court, Holland didn't tell her about Gant because she never asked him directly where he got the work from, which seems like a very weak excuse. However, the judge highlights that although Holland had acted a bit suspiciously, he was probably unaware that the work was a fake and probably didn't purposefully mislead McBride and Sharp into purchasing a fake, but due to the fact that he passed it on to Christie's as a real tucker, he was still liable to be sued. Christie's, due to the fact that they declared there was no doubt in it being an authentic tucker, which was further signified by the lack of a question mark next to Tucker's name on the listing, which is used by Christie's to denote doubt in an attribution, and that they didn't reach out to anyone once they heard opposing opinions after the work's sale, all became actions which opened them up to litigation. This was only compounded when it was discussed that Christie's knew that there was doubt in the signature's authenticity after the sale of the work, but before McBride had paid off the full work in May of 2000, meaning the sale could have been reversed if Christie's so chose, which is commercially reprehensible at the least, if not illegal. However, Christie's unsurprisingly countered that it was really McBride's art buyer Vivian Sharp's fault for purchasing the works for higher than the reserve price. 
Isn't that what the auction house wants, though? Artworks to go for higher than they have estimated because buyers get caught up in the moment? I thought that was, like, where they made all their money. And, further on, that Sharp shouldn't have encouraged McBride to purchase the work until she had personally verified the work was authentic. Not, not Christie's. She had to do it. I find this counterclaim laughable and desperate from Christie's, but I guess they had limited arguments they could make if they didn't want to accept fault, because, you know, why would they do that? Although Gant still surprisingly was not sued directly within this court case, it's absolutely shocking, I know, we still find out about three more suspect works that all end up being linked back to Gant. The Fawn and Parrot purchased by McBride, the Fawn being attacked by parrots sold to the Australian club, and a third tucker that was placed in a Menzies auction through his old friend John Playfoot. Here he is again. This court case finishes up just as the news starts to heat up around the three fake Whiteleys from previous episodes, which is where you would think Gant's story would end, but unfortunately for us, there is still one more, small case to look over. Again back in the financial courts, Gant steps into the Melbourne Magistrates Courts in August of 2015, pleading guilty to nine offences, being fined 3000 Australian dollars for making false declarations on his statement of affairs, travelling overseas eight times without consent, failing to declare interest on a property owned with his wife, and the sale of three other properties whilst bankrupt. How the Australian government let him get away with declaring himself bankrupt with three sellable properties is astounding to me, but bankruptcy law seems to be easily manipulated by con men and fraudsters the world over, so the fact that this has happened, although surprising, is also unsurprising at the same time. After this court appearance, everything goes quiet, largely for Gant. He's obviously still got the Brett Whiteley stuff going on, but aside from that, it goes quiet until 2019, when one of his associates, John Playfoot, is sued alongside Robert Gould of Gould Galleries over the 2002 sale of a Howard Arkley painting, well-suited brick veneer, from 1991, which was purchased for 205000 Australian dollars and recently found to be a fake. In the case, the prosecution argued that Gould hadn't provided adequate provenance and that analysis by the University of Melbourne's Centre for Cultural Materials Conservation Team, Robin Sloggett, believed that the work wasn't at Arkley. In testimony, Gould stated that he had joint ownership of the work with John Playfoot, who had purchased it from a private collection in Melbourne. Playfoot argued that he couldn't remember where he got it from. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Definitely sure you don't remember. But that it possibly came from the landlord of Arkley's studio in Windsor, in Australia, and further argues that the landlord may not have gotten it directly from Arkley, but from Peter Bloody Gant. This court case was particularly interesting to the Age newspaper where it was reported, as they had previously reported that Gould was having issues with a different work, a Brett Whiteley entitled Bather and Garden from 1978, that he had also bought as a joint purchase with John Playfoot before buying Playfoot out and selling the work for 1.5 million Australian dollars to a private collector in 2006. Gould told The Age that he couldn't confirm its provenance, meaning it would not be eligible for entry into the Whiteley catalogue raisonné, which was being worked on at the time, thus making the work largely worthless in the art market. Unsurprising to everyone here, Playfoot had purchased the work from Peter Gant, who had apparently found it somewhere in London, although he did not comment further information to a precise location or dealer. 
This case feels like a largely fitting end to the story of Peter Gant and the tall stories he has seemed to spin throughout the art market over his career spanning four decades, totalling in him being individually linked to, and here we go with a rundown, one Robert Drysdale fake, illegally selling a John Percival he did not own, 23 fake Charles Blackmans, which I will count as recurring artworks just to soften his total a little, 14 fake purple glass Lalique car mascots, a group of Sidney Nolan works, an undetermined amount, so we'll go with like three or four, three suspect Robert Dickerson drawings, the infamous three Lavender Bay Whiteleys, and an untitled nude by Whiteley, three Albert Tuckers, a Howard Arkley, and to finish the lot, another Whiteley work, totaling over 50 fraudulent works that all in some way link back to the toxic art market asset that seems to be Peter Gant. And you would think, listener, that with over 50 possible fake artworks, that would be enough for Gant. But no, because literally on the final day of editing my last episode, Gabriela Kolchevich came in clutch in the Australian Financial Review with an absolute bombshell of an article entitled He Said You Should Invest, I'll Help You Out. The article follows the unfortunate court case of Alexander Stanovich versus Stephen Drake, who you may remember as the unlucky second owner of Orange Lavender Bay after it had already been highlighted as a fake in the art market, had subsequently been returned to Gant and then sold by him again for the basement bin price of 122000 Australian dollars with hopes that the art market would resolve its status to an authentic Whiteley. Although painted as an unfortunate purchaser who was also taken in by Gant's fraudulent activities back in the original Whiteley court case, Drake seems to have been more involved than it originally appeared. According to Stanovich, he met Drake at a party in 2008, where they became friends over their joint passion for expensive cars, a wonderful rich man's pastime. During one of his visits to Drake's home, Stanovich noticed that Drake was a keen art collector and felt that he was a knowledgeable individual from the wide and valuable collection that he held in his home. After three years of friendship in August of 2011, Stanovich mentioned to Drake that he had 300,000 Australian dollars in savings that he wanted to invest somewhere. Drake suggested that he should invest in Questco Pty Limited, the company of Robert Letet, the infamous art collector and one of Gant's most prominent clients, in a scheme that he runs through Gant. As an investor himself, Drake said he made 20% per year on his investment and that after doing it for five years, he'd already made his one million Australian dollar investment back through Gant. In a meeting a few weeks later, Stanovich met Gant, who explained how the investment scheme worked and answered any questions he had, telling him that Gant ensures his investment by giving him art from his personal collection as collateral, in case anything goes wrong. I think we can all tell where this is going. After speaking with his business partner, he invested the money at the end of August, signing investment paperwork that listed the three artworks, a Robert Drysdale, an Albert Tucker, and an unknown Flemish schoolwork, with their approximate valuations by Richard Grace of Grace Fine Art that totaled 350000 Australian dollars that would be used as security on the investment, as well as when Stanovich should expect to see returns, equaling about 2250 Australian dollars per fortnight for 12 months. After signing the investment document, Stanovich made out his cheque to Pegasus Gallery, Gant's gallery at the time that was supplying the art as insurance, and that money, to Stanovich's understanding, went directly to Questco for investment. 
He also picked up the paintings directly from Gant's car, which I think for me would have been the big red flag. Who, in their right mind, drives around with 300,000 Australian dollars worth of artwork in the back of their car to then do a deal in a car park? The whole scenario screams criminal activity. I still can't believe that he went through with it at that point, but he did. He did. Surprisingly, everything goes according to plan, with Stanovich receiving his fortnightly repayments and goes so successfully that Stanovich invests another 100,000 Australian dollars at the beginning of November, adding another 750 Australian dollars to his fortnightly repayments and adding three more works to his collection. A Sidney Nolan, a John Brack and a Charles Blackman valued at 155,000 Australian dollars by Richard Grace once again. In slight deviation from last time, Stanovich made out three cheques, two cheques worth 80,000 Australian dollars to Pegasus Gallery and 20,000 Australian dollars to go straight to Questco, with Stanovich receiving only two of the artworks from Gant's car, again red flag, as the third, the John Brack, was at Drake's place, which led to Stanovich signing paperwork stating that Drake was holding the painting as security on his behalf. Again, everything goes well, and Stanovich decided to invest another 50,000 Australian dollars at the beginning of December, adding another 375 Australian dollars to his fortnightly payments, which are still coming, and getting two more paintings from Gant, a Sidney Nolan and a Howard Arkley the latter being held at Drake's home also. These works were valued at 140,000 Australian dollars, and again, everything continued to work out for Stanovich, with fortnightly repayments of 3,375 Australian dollars making their way back to him. Again, he invests with Gant, without Drake present this time, investing another 100,000 in May of 2012, with a final letter being signed by all three in August of 2012, a full year after Stanovich started investing, recording the investment plans for the next year. However, as with everything that Gantt seems to be linked to, and with every pyramid scheme, everything abruptly stops in December of 2013 for Stanovich, as he stops receiving payments. Panicked, he called Drake, who said he had also stopped receiving payments on his investment, and seemingly this was enough to tide Stanovich over until the 14th of March in 2014, where they all met up to sign another investment letter. Behind the scenes, however, Stanovich began to do his own investigating, contacting Questco to see Robert Letet about the issues with his investment. On the 25th of March, Stanovich met Robert Letet, where the investment scam shattered, as Letet revealed he had no knowledge of investments made by Stanovich International, saying, I think you've been had. Following up on this meeting, Letet sent Stanovich a letter at the beginning of April detailing the investment deceit, which Stanovich followed up with a demand letter to Pegasus Gallery on the 1st of March 2014, and by going to Drake's house to pick up the three paintings that were being held as security on his behalf, passing them along to Mr. Clark from Bonham's Auction House to verify their authenticity. Weeks later, Mr. Clark returned the expected news that the works were fakes, but unrelentingly, Stanovich searched for a second opinion from Leonard Joel specialist auctioneers, who declared one work to be fake, and another to be problematic in their valuer's opinion. So this doesn't mean that it's fully fake, but they just think there may be some issues with it and it may need further investigation before they can deem it as being an out-and-out fake. Seeking a third opinion from Menzies Auction House, who came back with the conclusion that they were all fake, Stanovich pitched his last hopes on Sotheby's Australia. 
Awkwardly, Mr. Smith from Sotheby's had already received notifications for these problematic works as far back as 2007, when the wife of Albert Tucker, Barbara, had inspected and declared the Albert Tucker painting as being a fake, and that the John Brack work was also most likely fake due to the fact that it is thought that all of his works have been compiled into his catalogue resume, and as it doesn't feature, it is most likely not by him. Taking the case to the courts, Stanovich went after Stephen Drake, rather than Gant, due to the fact that Gant was bankrupt at the time, uh, this is in 2021, and because Drake had brought Stanovich into this scheme by misleading him as to his investment and his expertise. According to the judge, Drake had set himself up as a knowledgeable investor to Stanovich in several ways, through helping him save money on a car deal in the past, highlighting himself as a knowledgeable art collector, appearing to be monetarily successful based on his home, car and art collection, as well as through specific promises that Drake had made to Stanovich, in which he stated that he would protect him with the art security on his investment and that he co-signed on all the investments paperwork between him and Gant as an overseer. In reality, it turned out that not only were all of the artworks fake, but that Drake had never invested one million Australian dollars with Questco in the first place, and that all of the valuations made by Richard Grace were for insurance purposes only, meaning that they were much higher than the possible worth of the actual works to cover for possible damages, and then some if something did happen to the works, but did not give an accurate reflection of the supposed auction or investment evaluation. In the end, after suing for 450,000 Australian dollars worth of damages for his monetary investment, the interest on that money, as well as the value of the art, which is realistically nothing, so is discounted from the possible damages owed by Drake, he was found guilty and told to pay 500,000 Australian dollars worth of damages to Stanovich. This $500,000 included his legal fees, as well as the 366,000 Australian dollars that Stanovich should have continued to make in his fortnightly returns, of which he had already received 180,000 Australian dollars when everything stopped in 2013. Although Drake filed for bankruptcy before the court case, a lesson from Gant's playbook, wouldn't you say? Stanovich felt positive about the likelihood of getting his money, as Drake was a man of means who held art, property and expensive cars. Now, although this is the end, Stanovich managed to drop another bombshell into this case, which when I saw it, had me flabbergasted, because in the article resulting from the guilty verdict by Gabriela Kolshevich, a picture of Stephen Drake is shown, and do you want to know what is hanging in the background of this picture from a Christmas party at Drake's house in 2013? The missing Brett Whiteley work, Lavender Bay Through the Window, that had not been seen since 2010, after Guy Angwin gave it back to an associate of Peter Gant, which depicts a scene of palm trees and garden in the foreground of the infamous Lavender Bay, as seen through the frame of a window on a largely white canvas in hues of purple and blue. So although this episode was meant to solely tackle our rather fraudulent friend Peter Gant, I think I can safely say that this story is not the story of a toxic individual within the art market, but a wider critique of, firstly, the structural problems within the art market at large that allow for individuals like Gant to continue to trade even after being linked to multiple fakes, uh, so we are talking probably about 60 by the end of the Stanovich situation, two, the difficulties of navigating the art world as a newbie investor, even with supposed experts to help guide you that may just be in it for themselves in the long run and are not actually interested in helping you develop your wealth or portfolio but lining their own pockets. And 
Thirdly, that even after being burned more than once, <coughs> John Playfoot, <coughs> some dealers, experts and investors are still willing to trust their friends with the worst reputations for the hopes of coming good in the end. As my final goodbye on this episode, I wanted to say thank you for being patient with me over the summer with uploads. I've been working full time and relocating with my partner and looking for a new job, so it's been a hectic few months. But I have some cases lined up that I think you'll all find interesting and will hopefully keep me motivated enough to stick to a monthly schedule. That may end up changing depending on possible new job, but I'm going to try and stick with it as best I can. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and you'll enjoy the next one, which should be out at the end of October, hopefully. Goodbye for now. And if you are in the art market in Australia, please just stay away from Peter Gant for your own sake and for your investment sake. Just just stay away. Just, just stay away. <laughs> <laughs>